This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation, like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. This is the Ben Burnett Show, the only show in America that features a one-term has-been retired politician that nobody knows. Welcome into the Ben Burnett Show. My guest today is the president and CEO of First Horizon Bank, headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee, Brian Jordan. Brian, after the last 30 days you've had, a lot more people have probably heard about your bank worldwide. I'm doing well, Ben. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. It's an honor and a privilege. Appreciate you guys are great partners with 680 The Fan and Extra 106.3 and my show. And hey, look, not everybody always gets to read their name in the Wall Street Journal. So having somebody like that affiliated with the station and affiliated with my show really means a lot. And I know you're a big part of making that happen. So I appreciate you. How did you grow up? Yep, I, I grew up in, in Salisbury, North Carolina. I actually relayed this story yesterday. I happened to be in Winston-Salem, and, and I rode by, I guess, what is the world headquarters of Krispy Kreme. I relayed the story by how my brother and I, at 11 and 12 years old, with a paper route on Sunday mornings after we threw the paper, would go by Krispy Kreme early with our dad probably put another nap in before we went to church. But I, I grew up in a small town. I grew up with a, a very close and strong family. My brother, my sister, uh, my dad is still alive. We're all very, very close. Our families are close. And and I grew up in a family that, that valued learning the lessons of, of work. And so we started out, my brother and I, as I mentioned, with a paper route. We, we learned business by running a, a newspaper business from buying the papers on a weekly basis and collecting from our customers on a on a 30-day cycle and, and running a business that really requires that you got it right every single day. Did you play sports in high school? I did. I did. I played uh, football and I played a lot of basketball, although not for the high school thing. So at some point you start thinking, I'm going to be a business guy when I grow up. What did you study in school and where did you go to college? I went to Catawba College and it didn't take me long to figure out I was not going to get paid for playing sports, and it didn't take me long to figure out it wasn't going to pay for my education either. So I, I really did get focused on the business world. I graduated from Catawba in 1984. Catawba happens to be in Salisbury, North Carolina. I studied uh, accounting, and I studied business administration. And I'm not sure that I completely understand how I, understand how I ended up in accounting but uh, my dad threw down a challenge to me that I couldn't avoid taking up. He, he was also an accounting major in college. And he told me something to the effect of, he said, you know, son, I never made less than an A in my accounting classes. I said, you tell me that after I make a B in, in one of my principal's classes. So I'm going I'm to take the challenge and I'm going to run the table. And, and that's what I did. When, when your undergraduate education in business and accounting, was that the end of the school train for you, or did you go back and get some advanced degrees before you got into banking? No, I didn't get 
get any advanced degrees. That was the end of, of my uh, formal education. Uh, I transitioned into public accounting. I am a, a recovering CPA. I've, I've spent seven years in the public accounting space, and I would tell you that was as big a part of my education as anything that I learned in school. In fact, I've spent time in two offices, both in Charlotte and in it. We have talked to great extent over time about your time in Atlanta. You talk about growing a career, what the opportunities that you looked for. Talk about your own personal experience and then talk about 2023 and what you do today. Sometimes thinking in the back of my mind, I was more predestined to be a banker than I ever understood. I, I might have told you it was accidental. I grew up in a banking household. My father, who, who's still alive, I talked to him quite often. And he, he and I spent a lot of time when I was in college, and I did a lot of part-time jobs for him while he was running a, a banking organization there in the middle of North Carolina. And so I started learning banking. Uh, from the bottoms up, from picking up trash in the parking lot to taking care of shredding documents in the back room. I think when I got into public accounting, it was somewhat accidental in that that I got assigned a fair number of financial institution clients to, to do the audit work on. One of the most significant was a name from the past. It was the old uh, First Union. It became Wachovia now part of, of Wells Fargo, but I was, I spent probably three, three and a half years working on the, the first union engagement. And that's where I really got to learn an awful lot about the, the banking business and saw it from the bottoms up. After my third or fourth year, moved to Atlanta and I had the, the real fortune to work on additionally financial institutions, including the Georgia part of first union. But I also had the opportunity to learn a completely different industry. And I had, I can't remember, two to three years of leading the Home Depot engagement. Folks in Atlanta clearly know the Home Depot story and how tremendous that is. Getting the opportunity to learn retail, learn about a different industry was is invaluable. And, and that really still shapes how I think about banking and, and our organization. After about seven and a half eight years in public accounting, I jumped into banking, and I started with First Union. They'd offered me a couple of opportunities previously. Our, our oldest daughter, Kevin, my oldest daughter, was born in early, 19, oh, excuse me, late 1991, and we joined First Union not long after that. I spent uh, nine years at First Union, another seven years at Regions, and I've been here at First Horizon for 16 years. I was very, very fortunate in my time at First Union to get to see a wide, wide cross-section of the organization, the roles that I had supporting the various support units and business units, everything from commercial banking to consumer banking to staff support areas, really put me in a position to learn banking from the bottoms up and relate that to, to my finance. Uh, training and background, and, and I, I would attribute that as much as anything to what I'm doing today. I was just fortunate that I got to see a lot of the organization and, and had a lot of mentorship and support during those years. I was able to apply it at, at, at Regents in Birmingham and then 
can come here and, and play a role. Basically, it helped us uh, reorganize the business in 2007 and, and eight, and now sit in the seat I've been in since September of 2008 as chief executive officer. You, you have seen more than one day of its set of challenges in banking. What was yeah, it? Absolutely. What, what was it like in 2007 and 2008, knowing and seeing the in early indicators of the Great Recession, and knowing that there was going to be tons of money pumped out out of the Fed to sit there and really, you know, you watch some staple banks come and go, you know, with Lehman Brothers. You, knowing that you sit in comparison as a small fish compared to guys that were too big to fail, I guess that's where that really came about. What was that experience like just from a leadership standpoint and knowing how did you see the business, the banking business change during that time when you take your first job at the top of the mountain? Ben, I, I would say that the timing was very interesting. We had spent most of uh, the back half of 2007, 2008 restructuring our balance sheet at First Horizon. I was the CFO at the time. We restructured our business. We got out of a national mortgage business, and we took a, a significant portion of our portfolio and put it into wind-down mode. So we felt like we had positioned our business for the long term, and during that period, we had raised $690 million of capital, I believe it was. But we, we had a what we thought was a very stable business that was reorganized. We knew it was going to be choppy. I became CEO on September the 1st of 2008. And I think it was September the 7th when Fannie and Freddie failed. Then you had AIG, uh, Lehman Brothers. You had uh, Washington Mutual Countrywide. And you, you go on down the list. Wachovia was part of all of that. And really started to see the fragility of the financial system in, in that period. Interestingly enough, I spent a lot of time trying to understand the work that the Federal Reserve, the Treasury in particular, were doing working with the administration and Congress to bring confidence back into stability, back into the system. But it was a, a really interesting time. It was a, a period where I say I earned most of, of the blonde hair or gray hair that I have today simply because of, of how fast I got into the deep end of the pool in terms of trying to navigate through a significant trembling of the system. As, as you know, we were at that time a 30, plus or minus 35 billion, 25 to $35 billion organization, depending on whether you count non-strategic or not. And in some ways it was a benefit to be below the headlines, but it was a, a time frame where Everybody in the industry was under a microscope, and so it was an interesting thing. And it's had a lot of impact on how I've thought about really the challenges of the last 15 years, including most recently the pandemic and what's happened following the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, Signature Bank, for example. For those of you playing at home, Brian resides in Memphis, Tennessee, which I think is if there is a city in this country that I do not live in that I pull for more than anywhere else, it's there. Because I believe that the CEOs of AutoZone or First Horizon or International Paper really, really 
large companies that are important to the ecosystem, but how they treat the economy in Memphis is different than how your CEO of Coca-Cola or Delta Airlines, where they're grateful for Atlanta, but you have such a larger profile and a great it's it's honestly like a sense of greater good that everybody that has a headquarters in Memphis is one extremely proud of it and two they know that it's a city that has had immense challenges for decades talk about your relationship with Memphis and the other CEOs in Memphis and how you guys really try to leverage other entities into coming to town you're all on the Mount Rushmore of that city's economy from a business perspective. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. As people will glean from what I described and a little bit of background I gave, I've, I've lived in quite a few places across the South, and, and my wife and I and our children would, would say that, that we're Memphians. This is a, a, a unique city that, that I have tremendous love and respect for. It, it is, as you said, a city that has had its series of challenges and, you know, most notably significant inflection point with the assassination of Dr. King here in the late 60s. The city is a a very connected city, and a a number of our significant leaders, like a Pitt Hyde who founded AutoZone, Fred Smith who founded FedEx, and, and 20 or 30 other CEOs really got together to, to create an organization where we can really try to play an active role in partnering with the community, partnering with government, partnering with the state of Tennessee to, to make sure that businesses align with creating a, a much stronger social, much stronger economic fabric for the entire community. And I think what is sort of the underpinning of all of that is, is that these organizations that, that have the, the luxury of doing business here in Memphis also recognize that it is not good enough just to be a successful business if the social fabric, economic fabric of your community is weak. And so we have worked very hard to do that. A lot of work has been done. We're making tremendous progress, for example, in the education system. We're seeing significant progress in the school system, which is a unified uh, city-county school system. Uh, We are supporting and and seeing tremendous focus on advertising the the, the heart and soul of of Memphis. And so you're seeing entertainment. You're seeing one of the the best basketball teams in the NBA with the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, The University of Memphis is attracting a lot of young people. You're seeing a revitalization of downtown, people moving back into the inner city and, and really creating a, a tremendous energy that goes around the, the city. For those that don't know their geographic, we're right on the Mississippi River, and it's one of the greatest natural resources in the country. But it also happens to be the western edge of the city, and the city center is, is not far from the river. So most of Memphis is east. So pulling people back into downtown, creating that energy, that vibe is, is, is very positive. But again, I think it just goes back to business seeing itself as, as a part of a collaboration of community leaders, of government leaders, and, and working to, to create a much stronger social 
and economic forever. So, and to that point, if you ever want to just stop by Brian's office, the conference room sits on the top floor of one of the highest buildings that overlooks the Mississippi River, and you could watch it for hours. It's fascinating, and it's and it's in as big as you think it is. It's bigger, like it's just an enormous asset to this country. I want to give you credit for one thing, and I stole it from you. And I said this I, every once in a while. I part with things. I came looking at a business opportunity in Memphis three or four years ago. When I walked in the room, you had all the CEOs from all the giant companies, and you guys wanted a data center. And there was nobody headquartered there. And, you know, it was the Chamber of Commerce. It was people like yourself. It was people from AutoZone and FedEx and, like, companies that need no introduction. And I stole that from you. And when I sat in elected office, if you were a giant corporation looking at bringing jobs into Alpharetta, I literally stole the entire playbook. And if you came to visit us when I was on the city council in Alpharetta, and I had a gentleman who is now the president at the University of Memphis who came to visit, and we were looking at doing something for kids in Alpharetta and Fulton County Schools about getting Auburn to offer children in Fulton County Schools free and reduced lunch, and then it was four or $500 a class for anybody who went to, the Fulton, to Fulton County Schools in the school system. And he sat down at lunch, and he said, I have heard of every business that is sitting here today. And I had the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce and I had people from huge companies. And he was like, that is super impressive. And it was really funny. I just thought about it. I got on my phone and was like, Bill Hargrave is his name, who was the provost at Auburn at the time, is now the president at the University of Memphis. So I pull for him too. I hope you have have had time to connect since he took the helm. He's a super innovative thinker. Yeah, I'm Imitation is the greatest form of flattery, they say, so I think that's great, and I think every community ought to do that. And Bill Hargrave is, is a fantastic asset to this community and the University of Memphis. Those, that, that institution is, is vital to our success because of the, the young people that it attracts, it educates, and a lot of those young people stay here in the community. So I want to get to the hard part. But in recent memory, you guys signed a letter of intent several years ago with TD Bank based in Canada. They And they were going to acquire you, and you have acquired other banks. And that set in regulatory and Senate confirmation hearings and all sorts of things that I'm sure you know far better than anybody who is listening to this show. And then we saw two months ago Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic kind of go under well-known banks that service specific industries in this country. And some weeks later, it it comes out, TD is going to terminate their deal with First Horizon Bank. You're going to pay you $200 million to go away or 250 in fees. And I saw it and I was like, I got to reach out to them. You guys are giving $50 million of that termination fee into the communities that you serve. So talk about how it comes about that a bank gets interested in acquiring you and talk about the level of detail that you have to provide and how painful that entire process may be, even if it's the right thing. This is largely, it's definitely all public information. We, we put a proxy out last year before our shareholder meeting. First Horizon has, has been literally headquartered 
within three blocks of where I'm sitting right now, Ben, since 1864. 1864. Abraham Lincoln was president when we were founded. <laughs> and we've we've been through a tremendous amount, the yellow fever epidemic in, in Memphis, the financial panics of the early 1900s, World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two, number of conflicts. So we've seen a, a, a lot of, of the arc of history. And we take great pride in serving our customers and communities, not only here in Memphis, but across our footprint, we have a presence led by a great team in, in Atlanta, Metro Atlanta, for example. And we were not for sale. So we went through a process with TD. They, they presented a, an offer that we thought was extraordinarily compelling for our shareholders. Our shareholders overwhelmingly approved that. But there is always a regulatory approval process. As you noted in, in early May, Roughly a month or so ago from the time we're talking today, we announced that due to issues that really were unrelated to First Horizon, it was uncertain when we could get clarity about regulatory approval and that we terminated the merger agreement. Expect after 14 months, that has a certain amount of, of impact and difficulty to work through. I would say that the one thing we did that paid great dividends on the front end is we, we made two commitments. One was that we were going to deliver a better bank than TD negotiated for, so we kept working very, very hard. And two, that we were going to pay attention to the fact that until regulatory approval was granted, we were going to assume that there was always the risk that it wouldn't be. And so we kept running hard, and, and our folks, continued to build the business. We, we hired over a thousand people over the course of the last year. We have done a, a lot of work to keep the momentum high in the business and that showed in our first quarter results. So when we, we worked through the termination, we announced it publicly, our people continued to do what they've done for the last 159 years, which is to take care of customers, take care of communities, continue to look to, to to bring our skill set, our partnership approach to doing business with our customers and, and grow the business. You mentioned the, the termination fee. We, we did allocate $50 million of that termination fee or $50 million. Uh, $50 million is fungible, but we, we wanted to put it in our foundation. Our First Horizon Foundation has been around since the early 90s. We gave some $20 million or $20 million plus last year out of our foundation. We wanted to, to make sure that, that our customers and our communities, most importantly, knew that we were going to continue to do what we have been doing for the last 30-plus years with our foundation and what we've done for the last 159 years, which is to give back. A statistic that I'm really proud of, it amazes me every time I see it. Across our 12-state footprint, our associates gave back over 24,000 hours in 2022, just volunteering for a Habitat house or, or working on a community board. And, and I will promise you, Ben, that number is understated because we don't track every hour. And I would tell you, I'm, I'm probably the, the first among centers because I don't track a single hour when I do something in the community. 
I look at it and go 24,000 hours plus. I'm really proud of, of the way our organization is connected to being part of, of our community. So I want to ask you, I, I referenced Jamie Diamond on the show a lot. And anytime that guy's it mentions your name or mentions your brand, it, 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 it holds weight. He's the CEO of the largest bank in the country. Anytime the Senate has a banking in a banking conversation, I think they just subpoena him because they all want to meet him. You have seen him really be the elder statesman to defend and look out for mid-sized banks, especially in the last two or three months. And I know you can't speak for him, but it seems like there is a cohesion in the industry right now when you get to a certain size that you guys, although you compete for business, I think he has done a tremendous job of saying these banks are so necessary to this economy. We will not be a great country without them. Talk about what it means when you hear guys like that sit there and talk about the good parts of your business and what it means you know, and what it means holistically moving forward for the industry, especially knowing there's a mountain of scrutiny in it right now. I, I have tremendous respect, too, for Jamie, and, and I've seen visit with him from time to time. And, and my experience with Jamie is, is he is extraordinarily thoughtful about the, the entire uh, ecosystem of the country. And you see that in his annual letters and you see it in what he says. And, and the other thing I take away from my conversations with him is he's very direct and he says what he means. And I find that very refreshing. I, I, I do believe that, that he is right when he talks about this is a, a complex economy. It is a complex economic system that we have in the U.S. Not to get too far into the weeds, but if you go into a lot of, of other economies, Canada is an example, Europe, a lot of Europe, you have very concentrated banking. The U.S. banking system is very diversified and disaggregated, and we have something like 4,500 to 4,700 banks across the United States. And, and I firmly believe that banks of all sides play a significant role in meeting the needs of, of this very complex economy. If, if you're starting up a business, you know, next week and, and you want to, to be in a position to start with two or three trucks and you've, you've got a business plan and, you know, whatever it entails, you know, having somebody in the community who can service that need is, is very, very important. And it, it creates sort of a virtuous cycle. And, and I think if you look at the statistics, they, they pretty well paint a picture that the, the credit needs of Main Street of America is met by a very broad cross-section of the banking system. And I think that's one of the real strengths of, of our economy in the U.S. And if we can complain about what the economy is doing at any given point in time, but it is the best economy in the world. It is the world's reserve currency. And we have something really special. So I, I do believe, based on everything that I see, whether it's a Jamie Dimon or a Brian Moynihan or others, 
I think they really do see the importance of having this broad, diversified banking system that we have in the U.S. When you look down the field from 2024 to 2030, do you think all the consolidation is done with the mid-sized banks in the near term and the distress? As you look out, you know, absent absent your bank, it's well documented that you guys have, have a super clean balance sheet and have since you were the CFO. But as you look at the industry as a whole, what? how do you think things are going to change? Do you think that some of the regulation around it from the federal government needs to loosen a little bit, or do you think that it's just going to change depending on power structure and strategy, internal banking strategy from the top, guys like you and guys like Jamie? I, I think we're, we're going to see further consolidation in the banking system, and, and I think that's a byproduct of two things. One, it is we're likely, as a result of the cycle that we've referenced in the last few months, see tighter or more regulation. And, and that's not it's by necessity a bad thing, but it is, by definition, more costly. And so scale impacts your ability to deal with, with enhanced or deeper regulation. And the second is, is that the cost of technology continues to escalate. The cycle times on replacing technology come faster and faster. I'll use the example of an online mobile banking system. If the system costs you $5 million to replace it, technology needs say you have to replace it every three years, then that, that system's going to cost $5 million every three years. It doesn't matter whether you have – the system doesn't care whether you have 5,000 customers on it or 5 million customers. It's still going to cost $5 million. But scale in the technology and the regulation, I think, is going to continue to drive consolidation. I don't think it is a environment where we're going to consolidate down to five or six banks. I think if we get to 2029 – I would bet you my bottom dollar that you're still going to have a very robust community banking infrastructure in the U.S. You're going to have a mid-sized regional banking infrastructure. You're going to have some very large banks. In my view, are required to service the world's largest companies and and leading economies. And so I think we're going to have a, a, a very diverse and disaggregated system. Will we have 4,700 banks? I doubt that. Will we have Somewhere between, I'd say my number in 2029 plus or minus 2,500 banks in the United States, which if you do the math on 50 states, it's still, what, 50 or so per state. So you, you, you've still got a very granular and disaggregated system that I think will be very responsive to our complex economy. Do you want to go ahead and roll it out there that you guys are about to invest just mountains of resources in the city of Atlanta? Yeah, we you know, Atlanta is an area of, of focus for us. We have, if my memory serves me right, about nine banking centers in Atlanta today. I mentioned we have a really good, strong team there, and we want to build around it. And as you can imagine, in the course of the last year, as we were under and working under a merger agreement, we were not able to, to expand our branch footprint. Uh, that is behind us, and we'll be in a position to, to look for opportunities to grow in places like Atlanta, uh, throughout Florida, uh, north and east Texas. We, we've got some great footprint 
markets and some opportunities. And as I was talking to a grouper, we really do see that that our retail and commercial banking system is the, the really the, the root of a lot of what we do and the strength of our organization. And we're continuing to invest in. Well, I want to get I want to pay you a compliment, and I'll let you go. Brian is the CEO of a publicly traded multi-billion dollar bank. If I email him or I call him, he, he always calls me back. So when you think you're too busy, Brian is not. I always appreciate that about you, and honestly, I've taken that for my own life. Brian Jordan, thanks for being a guest today on the Ben Burnett Show. Have a great day, everybody. This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation, like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Hi, I'm Mark Beckham with Atlanta Ramjack. We specialize in only foundation repair. What is foundation repair? Foundations sink or settle. These issues need to be addressed. It only becomes more costly the longer you put it off. What is the biggest cause of foundation problem? Either poor construction, inferior site preparation, or weather. Drought causes cracks in your foundations. If you see any signs of foundation issues, please contact us at atlantaramjack.com. 